purpose. <clears throat> What's that? Good morning, Isan. <laughs> morning, guys. Rob was gonna. He was thinking you were gonna be late today, Jolene, and he was he was trying to set you up. So, <clears throat> um, where is our girl Isan today? Oh, that's right. Yeah. Remind me at the end. Let's pray for 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 them too as well. So, um, <clears throat> all right. Last week we talked about King Xerxes, and we looked at Xerxes' kingdom. We discussed the absurdity scale and how just absurd Chapter One is. Um, it's it's just this. Re- I mean, you should laugh at it. It's kind of comedic. It's it's kind of, but it's it's also tragic in the same sense. Um, <clears throat> one of the things we did again is we looked at the absurdity of Xerxes' kingdom. Um, and just, you know, again, how, how, how tragic it is of a kingdom run in this fashion. Uh, we looked at the way that he tr- looked at power, sex, money, the way that his, he worked mentally, emotionally, relationally. Um, and it makes us long for a better king or a better kingdom. So we, we compared the kingdom of God, the kingdom of Jesus, to King Xerxes' kingdom, and we kind of had some fun. I made you guys do a little work, a little homework here yourselves. Now, the last part, which we didn't get to last week, is it allows us to challenge our kingdoms or queendoms. And I, I wanted to circle back to last week, and then I'm going to try and get into chapter 2 this morning. Um, but <clears throat> I think this is important to kind of talk about this and to kind of press into this a little bit. So we look at Xerxes' kingdom with the golden couches, with you know making laws, telling people how they are supposed to drink. Um, creating decrees that women will respect men, right? And we just think like, oh, this guy's a this guy's a joke. And we kind of again, we kind of laugh at it. It's it's so far out there. Again, going back to our absurdity meeting, it's just like so far. <clears throat> but the to me, the issue is as <clears throat> we compare and contrast it to Jesus's kingdom, it challenges our kingdom or our queendoms. When Jesus gives us the Lord's prayer. He says, uh, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth, in my heart, in my life, as it is in heaven. Right? When Jesus begins his ministry, <clears throat> here's this verse at the bottom. He, he begins his ministry with this challenge to repent. Remember, we've talked about repent. It's turning around, changing your ways. You're going one direction. <clears throat> he says, repent for the kingdom of God, right? For Jesus' kingdom and again, kingdom is kind of one of those, you might think of King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table. You might think of the King of Britain or some other king in Game of Thrones or whatever king you're, you know. But Jesus' agenda, Jesus' plan, Jesus' rule is at hand. It's here and now. It's available. So if you want to go one way, you can choose to go that way. Jesus invites us to turn around and come the other way. In Luke, Jesus says that no doubt the kingdom of God has come upon you. The question again, who, what kingdom will you choose? C.S. Lewis would say, <clears throat> um, at the end of life, there's two people. There's one person to whom God would say, thy will be done, right? So God looks at you and says, if you want to do your will, you go ahead and do what you want to do, right? And then the other group of people are the people that look at God and say, God, your will be done, right? I choose your will. I choose your kingdom. It's always been about these two choices of kingdoms, of agendas, of plans, of rules. I need to bust out my hula hoop again 
and give another kingdom teaching <clears throat> along <clears throat> and, and talk about that. So we, we, again, it challenges our queendoms. Now, we don't think of ourselves as absurd as King Xerxes. Again, with the golden couches and <clears throat> the goblets of gold and the 180 you know, 180 day long parties. But when we challenge our own kingdoms, can I just say kingdoms? Because queendoms just kind of sounds a little weird. So um, when we challenge our kingdoms, again, think about wealth or money. Where do you show off with wealth or possessions? How do we use money to impress, to influence to manipulate, right? See, again, I, I guarantee people in here, we don't think about this because <clears throat> we think, well, I don't have an 80-foot yacht. I don't have a private jet. I don't have a mansion in the hills of Yorba Linda, right? We don't think about, you know, going that far, but how are, what are those subtle, sometimes even a, a bit unconscious, nuanced tendencies that our finances can align more with the style and the kingdom of King Xerxes than with the kingdom of God, right? To be real simple and to be, I don't know, this is a bit silly. Is your kingdom about generosity or about bling? See what I'm saying? I mean, it's just real simple. The King Jesus, the kingdom of God, Jesus was about generosity. He was about giving. He was about using finances to bless others, to, to advance the kingdom. How often do we use our finances this, to impress, to influence, to manipulate, just for bling? Again, this challenges, we have to allow this to challenge us a little bit. Let me keep rolling through these, all right? Is that, are you with me on this? See how this challenges us? Let me roll through a few more of these. Power and control, right? Luke I was reading this, uh, this, this chapter out of Luke, and this is the, if you want to follow me, you have to pick up your cross and follow me. Jesus says, anyone who intends to come with me has to let me lead. You're not in the driver's seat. I am, right? So we think about power and control. And again, King Xerxes, um, King Xerxes, you know, wants to control everything. He wants everything in control. He wants people um, to do what he says, but the thing about power and control is are we willing to submit to Jesus and allow Jesus to take the wheel? Sorry, I had to sneak it in there. Sorry. Uh, Brian actually is going to be leading us in that song at the closing of the service. So I was just kind of priming you guys for that moment, right? Will you choose the kingdom of surrender, prayer, creativity? I know a lot of times with my kids, this is one of the things that I've actually picked up from some of the study about the Enneagram, is that in stress, in periods of anxiousness, I will move towards control. And when I'm relaxed, when I have more time, when I have less anxiety, I will be more creative with my children. So, for example, if I'm stressed or if there's a time crunch, I'm yelling at them, telling them what to do. If I don't feel as time crunched or stressed, I'm able to maybe have a game or something fun to kind of help pass the time or do things. Um, you know what I'm talking about? And again, this is a silly example, but you know, when I just think about my own family, this, this, this little thing that God's put in front of me, um, and, and it doesn't matter you know, kind of where your, your kids are at in this, in this stage, who's in the driver's seat in this one? Am I screaming and telling them, listen, I'm, I'm telling you what to do. 
Or am I being led by the Holy Spirit, by patience, creativity, surrender? Keep going. I want to move through these a little bit quickly. I want to talk about sexuality. I want to talk about women, right? So Xerxes uses sexuality and he uses women. Um, he, the, he just uses them for, for his own personal pleasure. He objectifies women, right? He wants to bring out Queen Vashti and he wants to show her off. And we said, you know, perhaps what's happening be, around this is it's not necessarily that she's coming out dressed like an Amish woman, right? But there is something, I'm careful with the little ears, <laughs> There is something erotic about this. There is something um, <clears throat> about this that's, that's, that's pretty sexual, right? Why would this woman turn this down, right? It, but there's something weird. So one of the things that I want to challenge us with is in our men's group, one of the things that some of the men have done is we have said, look, the objectification that happened to men or to women by men in, in the 400s before Christ is the same thing we have, see happening now with things such as pornography um, and those sorts of things. And so one of the things that we've done in our men's group is we said, hey, listen, let's, let's be careful about that. And there's men in our men's group that we've set up this account and we've set up this accountability software to say, hey, let's as men keep one another accountable because it's easy to have, again, the, king, the kingdom of Xerxes right here on our phone, right? Where we just objectify women, where we just look at women for our own personal pleasure, for own personal gratification. And we know that pornography hides right here. And just because King Xerxes did it in public with real human beings, it's the same thing. We have to challenge ourselves and say, God, where is my heart more aligned with King Xerxes than it is with King Jesus? And I want to say this too. For anyone in this church, we've kind of done this a little bit of a beta test with, with the men. Anyone in this church, and you're struggling with this, and it's difficult, and it's hard, and you want to bring some accountability, <clears throat> talk to me and let's get you set up on this. Now, this isn't getting broadcast out to anyone. It's between the men. It's between women. I know if I read the stats correctly, 50% of the people in this church struggle with it, right? That's just what the stats would tell me. And so if this is a concern for you or a temptation for you, again, we want to, I want to challenge that. I want to push into that. I want to say, where is this? Where are we objectifying women or men or human beings and we want to we move more towards the kingdom of God. If you have any questions about that, again, I want to talk to you about that afterwards or at some point. The mentality of Jesus. Uh, somebody's wronged you. Anybody ever kind of lay in bed at night and your mind just begins to think about all the ways that you're going to tell that person off? All the things you should have said in the moment. All the comebacks that you are going to have the next time you get into that conversation. Am I talking to anybody this morning? No, I'm not. Okay, let's move on. Really? There's a Seinfeld episode on that one? Oh, man, that's perfect. It's called the comeback? Okay. Mm. George, yes. Um, anxiety. Again, we stress about things that are to come lust. Um, this could be a sexual lust. This could also be a lust for um, just material possessions. Jealousy. Someone gets the new car or the RV or something happens. But again, we want to, Paul says this, this is such a great passage to memorize. Um, we want to set our minds on things 
above. Not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Right? Are we filled with forgiveness and understanding and patience and the goodness of God? We want to allow that to challenge our minds. The emotions of Jesus, again, kind of challenging our emotions. Um, King Xerxes, we see the rage, the uncontrolled anger, the demands. Uh, We know that there's withdrawal, there's passive aggression. How do you react when things don't go your way? How do you react when things don't go your way? Right? Um, My friend Jan would always say that there's great spiritual disciplines of abstinence. Fasting is one of them. Fasting is a time when you intentionally deny yourself, right? You intentionally deny yourself so that you begin to teach your mind and your soul that you don't always have to get your way, right? The body says, when I'm hungry, I eat. And I just get my way when I want to eat, right? Fasting says, I'm going to deny myself in this moment for this period of time. And it begins to train our soul, right? Um, how do you react when things don't get your way? <clears throat> is there humility? Is there submission? Is there a sense of, Father, not my will, right? It's not what I want all the time, but your will be done. Um, the relationships of Jesus. I just think about the people that are near you. And I remember hearing this one, um, this one image, and it's always stuck with me. If you think about the wake of a boat, right, and you kind of see how a boat, if you've been on a river or ocean, you see how the, the boat leaves this really long wake. Do you leave a trail of discarded relationships in your wake? Now, I know everybody in here will be like, no, that's not me, right? No, I, I, people love me and I'm happy with me. Um, but really, are the people that are behind you, when you think about people who have come in and out of your life, right, if I were to do an interview with those people, would they say, man, I was so better off for knowing Rob, for knowing Jesse, for knowing Dietra? Or they'd be like, oh, man, you know, that, that guy had a temper. He was putting me down. He always had a joke about me. He's always sarcastic towards me. The people in our lives, are they enriched? Are they blessed? Are they hesitated? John says it like this, beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. Beloved, if God has so loved us, we ought to love one another. Now, love here, we have to continue to break down this image that love is just an emotional feeling. That I just feel nice to that person. I'm just nice to that person. Love is willing the best for that person. Right? When I love my child and she's throwing a temper tantrum in the middle of the store, I'm probably not just going to be like, oh, I just feel so sweet and nice and kind towards you. I need to at some point have love say, you've crossed a line, right? And we need to change this behavior because I don't want you to be 32 and still throwing a temper tantrum in the middle of a store, right? When you don't get your way. And you see this with adults too, don't you? They might not be on the ground throwing a temper tantrum in the store, but there's all the ways that they just come irritated like this and they lose it, right? So again, the relationships, we want to love one another. We want God to love one another. Um, And I think 
that's where I want to stop with that one. I just want to, because again, we have to be, we have to look to Xerxes. And again, we see, we see the logical conclusion of Xerxes, right? If you allow the kingdom of Xerxes to run wild in your life, if you allow the kingdom of Xerxes to run wild in your life with wealth and power and sexuality, again, you see the, the comedic yet tragic end of that. And this passage, chapter one, it contrasts the kingdom of Xerxes and the, con- the kingdom of Jesus. And then it pushes it deeper because it confronts us with the subtle ways that we're structuring our, structuring our kingdoms and get a glimpse into the absurd and ridiculous conclusions of all these frivolous pursuits. Now listen, I will tell you this, and I want to be, be very clear about this. This is the ruthless, honest, interior work that we have to do through prayer in the Holy Spirit, through Scripture. And if you think that tomorrow you're going to wake up, or next week you're going to wake up, or next month or next year, you're going to wake up and automatically be following the kingdom of Jesus. If you think this is just going to happen, I'll just say this. You're an absolute, anybody listening or hearing this, you're an absolute fool. It's the same thing as saying, man, I can't wait. Next month I'm going to wake up and I'm going to look 10 years younger. It's just going to happen. I know it. Next year I'm going to wake up and my body is just going to have the vigor and the strength of when I was 19 years old. And we would look at you like, are you, have you been drinking today? Are you doing okay? What's, it's crazy to think that. But we have to do this ruthless, honest, interior work in these areas and, areas and say, God, where am I using wealth? God, how is power and control operating in my life? Where am I more closely aligned with the kingdom of Xerxes than of Jesus? And if we're not doing that work, with the Holy Spirit in prayer, with scripture meditation, reflection, spiritual disciplines, I guarantee you, you will drift easily more towards the kingdom of Xerxes than towards the kingdom of Jesus, right? We're all experienced that it's true in our lives. If we just wake up and think that, yeah, I'm just going to be a, you know, more like Jesus just because I had a good night's sleep last night. We're nuts. We're fools. This is the interior work that we have to do where we challenge ourselves, where we push into ourselves and say, God, where am I more like Xerxes? Where am I more living in this kingdom? God, how are you challenging me to push me more towards the kingdom of God? Okay, I think I've said that about every way I can. Are you guys ready to move on? But I want to push you into that because, again, that's why I wanted to come back to this this week. Right? We have to be, listen to do that interior work to say, God, where is that happening? Uh, Esther chapter 2. Let's see what happens next. Got a Bible there. Go to page 344. Esther chapter 2. We're going to be introduced to two new characters. Let's, uh, let's do that reading in the round technique that has become also famous here at the C's with the G's. So read a verse or two, and we're going to go through the first 20 verses. Later when King Xerxes' fury had subsided, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what he had decreed about her. Then the king's personal attendants proposed, let a search be made for beautiful young virgins for the king. Let the king appoint commissioners in every province 
of his realm to bring all these beautiful goals into the harem at the citadel of Susa. Let them be placed under the care of Haggai, the king's eunuch. Is that how you say that? Mm-hmm. Who is in charge of the women. And let beauty treatments be given to them. Then let the young woman who pleases the king be clean instead of washing. This advice appealed to the king and he followed it. Now there was in the citadel of Susa a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin, named Mordecai, son of Jer, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, who had been carried in exile from Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, among those taken captive by Jehoiakim, king of Judah. Mordecai had a cousin named Hadassah, whom he had brought up because she had neither father nor mother. This young woman, who was also known as Esther, had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Mordecai had taken her as his own daughter when her father and mother died. You got all the tricky names last week too, didn't you, Chase? The Lord is just speaking to you. Yeah. girl's turn came to go into to King Xerxes after she had completed the 12 months of prescribed beauty treatment. Six months treatment with oil of myrrh, followed by six months with perfumes and various cosmetics. When it was time for the girl to go to the king, she was given whatever she wanted to take with her when she left the harem for the king's quarters. She would go there in the evening, and the morning she would return to a second harem overseen by Sheshbaz king's eunuch in charge of the concubine. She never again went back to the king unless the king took a special liking to her and asked for her by name. When the turn came for Esther, the young woman Mordecai had adopted, the daughter of his uncle, uncle, Abihel, to go to the king, he asked for nothing other than what Haggai, the king's eunuch who was in charge of the harem, suggested. And Esther won the favor of everyone who saw her. She was taken to King Xerxes, the royal residence, in the tenth month, the month of Tibet, in the seventh year of his reign. Thank you. 
When the virgins were assembled a second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, but Esther had kept secret her family background and nationality, just as Mordecai had told her to do so. For she continued to follow Mordecai's instructions as she had done when he was bringing her up. All right. <clears throat> we got these two new characters. <clears throat> uh, we're going to, the next, like the next part is probably going to be next week. So, yeah, we're just, we're cutting it, we're cutting it short. I know. We're almost there, we're almost there. <clears throat> um, we get these two new characters. Uh, we get Mordecai and we get Esther. <clears throat> Mordecai, this name is Man of Marduk. Marduk is the chief god of the Babylonian pantheon. The Babylonians had thousands of gods. Marduk was the chief god. Now, what's fascinating here um, is, is that in the ancient Near East, on a scale of 1 to 10, 10 being like the most important thing in the world, 1 being not important at all, how important is someone's name? Good. 10, maybe a 12, right? Your name is everything. If you're a Jew and you're taking on the name of a pagan god, this is a bit troubling to say the least. Robin and I are expecting our fourth child. We're going to name him Diablo. <laughs> and you'll look at me and be like, wait, Diablo means devil, doesn't it? Oh yeah, but it's just, it's just a name, right? We're going to name her Delilah. You, again, and that's even in our culture where a name is a name. We don't really give great you know, importance to names. Mordecai's taken on this name Marduk, right? king of the Babylonian gods. Esther has two names. Esther has a name, and again, we hear Hadassah, and we hear um, Esther, Ishtar. Um, Esther is also Ishtar, and, and there's a whole Easter comment debate. Ishtar was the goddess of love and of war. Hadassah is her Hebrew name. It means myrtle. Myrtle was a plant. It was an evergreen bush, and it had these kind of pretty white flowers attached to it. Um, we name our children Rose, Lily, Blossom, I forgot to put a, I was going to put a picture of Blossom, the 1990s <laughs> sitcom star in there. But it was Hadassah, which was um, Myrtle. And I think the author's saying something to us in this, in this here. And even Mordecai, where it says he was from the tribe of Benjamin. I think the author's trying to speak something to us here, that these characters are trapped in between two worlds, right? They're living in Persia as exiles, and they're trying to retain their Jewish identity. I think that you and I relate to that because we are trapped between two worlds. We live, so to speak, in the United States. We live in this, in this world. We live in Orange County. And yet, we live in the kingdom of God. We live, Jesus says that you are in this world, but you're not to be of this world. Right? And we get a glimpse of this here with these two characters that there's, there's some sort of an uneasiness or some sort of a tension in their identity about what world they are actually a part of. Are they Persian? Are, have they adopted the gods of Marduk, of Ishtar? Are they Israelite? Are they still Jewish? Right? And there is this question that happens here. Now there's these two characters and we say that, we hear that, um, that the king Xerxes, you know, he remembers Vashti 
And between the time when he kicks out Vashti, right? Remember chapter end of chapter one, Vashti's disposed as queen. And by the time he chooses Esther, there's a four-year period that happens, say, in between chapter one and chapter two. And one of the things that Xerxes gets caught up doing is Xerxes is out making a movie with Gerard Butler. <clears throat> Sorry, ladies, I'll do it like that. So we just, <clears throat> a lot of struggling going on there. Um, <clears throat> if you've maybe seen or heard of this movie, 300 with these two characters, um, it's an interesting time when the Bible and history line up alongside one another. Xerxes literally in this, in this period he goes to invade, the Persian army goes to invade Greece. There is the famous battle of Thermopylae, um, and that's where the Persian army is trying to invade Greece, and they encounter this very um, powerful Greek resistance. I don't know if it was exactly 300 or how many people, but there is this, this battle. And this is, this is this time period, most historians would say, is that when Xerxes disposes his queen, he goes to war against Greece, right? And what happens is, is he actually fails, again, just as kind of the movie Hollywoodizes, he fails in this war, but what he then does is he comes back and he succeeds in what we're going to call trafficking, right? And he, one of the things he does is he takes, it says in, in chapter 2, is he begins collecting all these women from the 127 provinces, right? Go to chapter 2. They give him this advice. Hey, let's appoint commissioners in every province, we know that he rules over 127 provinces, this is uh, verse 3, to bring all these beautiful women into the harem of the citadel of Susa. So let me set up people in charge of all my provinces, go choose the beautiful women and bring them to me, right? Again, we call that trafficking is what we call that, right? This isn't, <clears throat> by the way, this isn't Miss Persia 480, where you would fill out an application and you would um, have a tryout and send in a video of you dancing, hoping that you would get chosen. The people would come to your house and say, wow, you have a beautiful daughter. Say goodbye, right? We're, she's going to the king. And, and typically, again, we're talking virgins. We're talking young women here, right? So again, this is, a, it, it's a bit, hopefully your stomach's getting a little like, oh, that's kind of that's gross that they would do that, right? That's, that's not the way things are supposed to be. You're sent to a palace. You spend a year getting pampered to have sex with the king for one night. And after that happened, right, after you had that encounter with the king, that's it. Maybe the king would call you back, but you would then spend the rest of your days living in the palace. You didn't go home. You didn't go hopefully live happily ever after with another husband. You lived in the palace because the king had such issues of power and control. He didn't want anyone else to have sex with someone whom he had sex with. This is just kind of what historians tell us about the way that this things work. So maybe the king would call you back. If not, he would just replenish his harem. He'd just add more concubines. He would just add more virgins. <clears throat> by the way, ladies, if you're feeling especially kind of sickened by this, I'm going to sicken the men as well. One of the things that we learn <clears throat> from, um, there was a historian in that time. His name was Herodotus. And one of the things that Herodotus would report is he would say that the king also required as tribute, as tax, from different provinces. He would require as tribute or as tax 500 young boys. Again, there's this word that comes up, and you've probably been noticing it again and again, eunuch. Eunuch. King's got all these eunuchs around. Where's he getting all these eunuchs? 
they would require as tax from the different provinces, bring me 500 young boys whom I am going to castrate and they are going to serve me as eunuchs, right? So you have on one side, you have his exploitation and his dehumanizing of women. You have on the other side, his exploitation and his dehumanizing of young boys. Again, it's a sick scene. What you know, We think of King Xerxes, oh, he's just a king and he just kind of had big parties and he's probably a fun-loving guy. He's a sick individual. This is how the kingdom of Xerxes, this is a sad, tragic end of the kingdom of Xerxes. One of the commentators says it like this. She says, it's a brutal act of how power was used in the Persian court. Everyone, whether male or female, was at the disposal of the king's personal whims. I want to lead you in an exercise. My friend Jan taught me this. Um, years ago, Jan taught me this. It was such a powerful exercise when she led, this, uh, led me through this. We read together Psalm 56. And she asked us to read Psalm 56 through the eyes of the marginalized, of the oppressed, of the hurting. I want to read Psalm 56 with us this morning. And I want us to put ourselves in the shoes of one of these females or males. A female who has just been chosen to go to the king's court to serve as a concubine. A young boy who's going to the king's court to go serve as a eunuch. And I just want you to kind of put yourself in these shoes for a second as I read to you Psalm 56. Are you ready? Psalm 56 reads like this. Be gracious to me, God. For people trample on me. All day long, foes oppress me. My enemies trample on me. All day long, for many fight against me. Almost high when I am afraid, I put my trust in you. In God, whose word I praise. In God, I trust I am not afraid. What can flesh do to me? All day long they seek to injure my cause. All their thoughts are against me for evil. They stir up strife. They lurk. They watch my steps. As they hoped to have my life, so repay them for their crime. In wrath, cast down the people's Oh God, you have kept count of my tossings. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your record? Then my enemies will retreat in the day when I call. This I know, that God is for me. Now I want to read that one more time. And what I want you to do is I want you, I'm going to read it one more time. I want you to, and maybe it's helpful for you to close your eyes and to think about this deeper. I want you to think about somebody who's marginalized now. And maybe it's a teenager. You know, we talked a lot about trafficking this morning. Maybe it's a teenager trapped in Southeast Asia in Bangkok and they're being used and abused right now. Maybe it's someone right here in Orange County. Human trafficking is a huge part, huge problem right here in Orange County. Maybe you think of a senior citizen who's just trapped in a senior citizen home. Maybe you think of the homeless. 
think about the single mom who's homeless, who's been abused, used. If you think about illegal immigrants, I want you to choose someone in your mind. And I want to read this psalm one more time to you. And again, if it's helpful for you to close your eyes and think about this person or a person or a group of people. Be gracious to me, O God, for people trample on me. All day long, foes oppress me. My enemies trample on me all day long, for many fight against me. O Most High, when I am afraid, I put my trust in you. In God, whose word I praise, in God I trust, I am not afraid. What can flesh do to me? All day long they seek to injure my cause. All their thoughts are against me for evil. They stir up strife. They lurk. They watch my steps. As they hoped to have my life, so repay them for their crime. In wrath, cast down the peoples, O God. You have kept count of my tossings. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your record? Then my enemies will retreat in the day when I call. This I know, that God is for me. When Jan led that, this has been a practice that's just kind of stuck with me over the years um, when Jan led me in this practice. And I hope it's something that kind of sticks with you too, again, to, to see and to pray over people or, or even just to, to remind ourselves of the vulnerable and the hurting in this world, right? Um, <clears throat> let me switch gears here. I want to kind of finish up a couple things. Sometimes we read uh, Esther chapter 2 and, you know, one of the tendencies that we get trapped in is we try and extract morality lessons out of the Bible, right? Especially in the Old Testament. Um, This becomes very problematic in this chapter because there is no good morals here, right? Here's the narrative of this chapter. Mordecai and Esther have both taken pagan names, Neither have returned to Jerusalem. Nehemiah had just led the return to Jerusalem. Mordecai is so assimilated that he's actually living in the palace. He's living in the citadel, right? Mordecai does nothing to hide or protect his niece. Esther does nothing to stand up to the king. We have other narratives in the scriptures, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, where they say, we will stand against the king and we're going to go to the fiery furnace and God protects him. We have Daniel who says, no, I will not bow down to the king. I'll go be with the lions, right? She does nothing to stand up to the king. She participates in the eating customs and foods of Persia. She rises to her high position, not by obedience to the law, like Joseph when he refused Potiphar's wife, but through sex and beauty as if the ends justify 
the means. One of the Jewish commentators, he's an old school Jewish commentator, said that Mordecai should have risked his life to protect Esther, his niece. The king's coming and says, yeah, she's a virgin and she's pretty, right? And Mordecai says, yeah, well, just, uh, just don't let him know you're a Jew and you're good, right? And the commentator, this 15th century Jewish commentator that says Esther should have committed suicide before allowing herself to be violated by Xerxes, right? This chapter is about compromise. It's about abuse of power. It's about trafficking. It's about exploitation, poor choices, moral decay, disregard of the Torah, lost identity. It's dehumanizing, right? I would say that if we talked last week about the absurdity scale, maybe for this book, I'll just do a scale every week. I think this scale this week is a chapter that brings us absolute lament. It brings us grief. We see the end. We see how sad and how sickening it is for the concubines and the virgins and for the eunuchs and for everything that's around. And we see how bad it is. It's just not a a pretty picture. And there is a certain sense, again, when you encounter this chapter of discouragement, even despair, right? When you read it like this. And here's what I want to do, right? Because here's, as we read this, I think it has something to say to us. We'll close up with this. Is you begin to contrast Xerxes with Esther, right? Xerxes is debauched with power, prestige, wealth, control, authority. Esther is an orphan. She's a female. She's Jewish. She's obscure. She's vulnerable. She's taken. She's forced into a life no one would choose. No one chooses this life, right? And I think what we get a glimpse into here is I want to say it's the gospel of weakness. This is kind of a shadow into the gospel of of weakness, right? We follow Jesus. The gospel that we preach and proclaim, the gospel that we teach, is about a savior who chooses a cross rather than a scepter, who chooses a towel rather than a sword, right? Jesus' kingdom, think about the kingdom of Jesus. It's based on a manger. It's based on Yeast, seeds, nets, shepherds. He talks about children. He talks about fish and loaves. This is what revolutionizes the world, right? Jesus doesn't run around with an army and power. He doesn't run around like Xerxes commanding people what to do. He teaches all these parables on seeds and nets and yeast and mustard. And he's, you know, has these group of young boys and he talks about how important children are and he socializes with the lost and the least. And I think that Xerxes and Esther, again, as we look at this chapter and you see the two, you get this glimpse. Again, Esther is the one that is going to save the nation of Israel. She's going to be the one to save the Jews. And you get a glimpse into the gospel of weakness. Strain says it just so well. He says, in fact, it is precisely here in Esther's abject weakness and brokenness, a victim of the malice and the hatred of the mighty and the political elites, it is precisely here that Esther preaches the gospel to us. God uses an abused, outcast girl, hiding her Judaism in abject fear. It is the weak things and the things that are, the things that are not, which God chooses to shame the wise I love this last part. And bring to nothing the things 
that are. We read chapter 2. I think chapter 2 leaves us with such grief, such lament, such sadness. And yet in this moment, in this weakness, in this despair, in this, this outcast, abused girl, God chooses to shame the wise and to bring to nothing the things that are. This is the gospel of weakness. Paul claims it like this. I want to read this and close with this verse, but I'm going to read it in two translations. Paul says, God chose those whom the world considers foolish to shame those who think they are wise. And God chose, here's a great one, God chose the puny and powerless to shame the high and mighty. He chose the lowly, the laughable in the world's eyes, nobodies, so that he would shame the somebodies. For he chose what is regarded as insignificant in order to supersede what is regarded as prominent, so that there would be no place for prideful boasting in God's presence. For it is not from man that we would draw, out, we would draw our life, but from God as we are being joined to Jesus, the anointed one. And now he is our God-given wisdom, our virtue, our holiness, and our redemption. One last translation on this is out of the message too. This is just so Eugene just, yeah. Take a good look, friends, at who you were when you got called into this life. I don't see many of the brightest and the best among you. Not many influential, not many from high society families. Isn't it obvious that God deliberately chose men and women that culture overlooks and exploits and abuses chose these nobodies to expose the hollow pretensions of the somebodies. That makes it quite clear that none of you can get on by, get on, that nobody you can get by with blowing your own horn before God. Everything that we have, right thinking, right living, a clean slate and a fresh start, comes from God by way of Jesus Christ. That's why we have the saying, if you're going to blow a horn, blow a trumpet for God. Isn't that beautiful? And again, Esther, as we hear, jump into chapter two, it's, it's this chapter of, of, should bring us grief, lament, despair. And yet in this grief, this lament, this despair, in this weak young girl, we get this shadowing, we get this foreshadowing, this taste into the gospel which comes through weakness, not through power, right? And this should give us hope because, again, as we sit here and I'm looking at this crowd right here, I don't see many of the brightest and the best amongst us. Just kidding, (laughs) right? We're just normal, average, everyday people when we turn our lives into the kingdom of God and give our lives there and place our hope and our trust there, right? That is how we get on with life. That's how we move forward in the kingdom. Everything we have comes from God. Um, I think that's enough for this morning. Yeah? A little comparison, a little contrasting, a little gospel of weakness. Probably got sick to your stomach somewhere about the middle of that sermon too, thinking about King Xerxes. Let's discuss it for a second. Uh, The three Ps, the praise, pushback, and the problems. What area... Money, sex, control, mental, emotional, relational. Do you find yourself needing to be more like Jesus or Jesus' kingdom? Um, where do you find yourself kind of be, 
stuck between two worlds, that Persia, that Israel, that Orange County, that Jesus. What did you find most disturbing about chapter 2? How do you see the gospel of weakness in the lives of Mordecai and Esther most vividly? And again, maybe where do you see that in your life? Is there a weakness in your life that God has maybe used to bring him glory? Um, let's take a few minutes on those. So if you need to get up and move around and get with someone, that, let's do that.